new and visiting us this morning, my name is Brendan. I'm one of the pastors in the church, and uh, we would love to meet you. So come and, come and say hi if you are a visitor. Uh, we're diving back into James. I can't even remember James. It's been so long. Um, if you're not normally someone who reads the Bible, James, basically just go right to the back, then turn back a little bit, and you'll find James a short letter at the back of the Bible, $105,000. Praise God for that. Isn't that amazing? Praise God. What a generous church we've been blessed with. And I'm looking forward to seeing how God uses that money for the furtherance of the gospel uh, here in our neighborhood. Uh, We're reading this morning from James chapter 4, verse 13. When you read with me the word of God, and then I'll pray. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And you pray with me. Lord, this morning we want to thank you that we can gather and celebrate your gospel together as your people. Lord, what a grace that you would shed your blood for us to make miracles possible. And Lord, this morning as we come to open your word, we just want to acknowledge that that's what we need. We need a miracle. We need something more than being affected by this word. We need your Holy Spirit to come into our lives and change us. So we pray, come Holy Spirit, bring to life your words, and change us to be like Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, I'm actually a big fan of uh, stand-up comedy. I love stand-up comedy. I was listening to, and I don't recommend it, but I was listening to the latest routine by uh, a classic comedian, uh, Chris Rock. And he said something And it kind of caught my interest. He said this. He said, I'm trying to get my life together, man. I'm trying to get a little religion in my life. Just a little. You see, religion is kind of like salt. A sprinkle is good, but too much will mess up the meal. Religion, says Chris Rock, is just like salt. A little sprinkle of it. That's good. But if you have too much of it, well, you absolutely mess up the meal. Um, 
It's this idea that religion is kind of like this little optional extra, a little add-on to life. You know, you shouldn't be too serious about it, but it's nice to have a little, uh, but not too much. We kind of want just moderation on the religious thing. You know, go to church most Sundays if you can, but the rest of the week, you know, live your life. Definitely don't do anything crazy like give lots of money or anything like that or serve anything beyond that. I mean, sacrifice. Now, that's crazy. I mean, have you ever had someone say to you, you know what, you're just over the top with this Jesus thing. I mean, settle down. It's really the spirit of the age we live in. Religion should be kind of like this personal, private extra. Um, So we can think about following Jesus on a Sunday morning for sure, but the rest of the week, we can find ourselves just looking out to the world like anyone else. You see, it's not just the spirit of our age. 2,000 years ago, James is writing to people with exactly the same thinking. And this passage really is about people who were not living for Jesus 24-7. They were only following Jesus part-time. And that's what I've entitled this morning's message, if you're taking notes. Part-time for Jesus. Uh, Really two simple points. Uh, I'm going to spend nearly the whole sermon on the first point. So don't freak out and think like this is an hour and a half um, if I'm still, you know, plodding away on the first point. And that first point is the folly of living for Jesus part-time. And my second point, which we're going to look at, is how to, it's just more of a sort of application point, how to live every day for Jesus. But really one heart this morning that I just have for all of us and for myself as well, and that's what, that would give ourselves to living for Jesus all day, every day. That's the simple take-home for today, that we'd be inspired by God's Word, by God speaking to us this morning to live for Jesus all day, every day. So let's dive into my first point the folly of living for Jesus part-time. Now, it's been so long since we looked at James, I'm going to spend about five minutes just looking and catching us up on what on earth James is about. Now, you might remember, if you were with us uh, last year, James is kind of this collection of sermons. It's kind of this mini-sermon series that's written by James, the brother of Jesus, to these new baby Christians who'd been scattered all around Jerusalem because of persecution. Now, this is one of the earliest... Uh, books or letters in the whole of the Bible. James is probably running about 10 years after Jesus was crucified, and so the gospel hadn't yet gone out to Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And these guys, they're baby Christians, they're new Christians, they're figuring out what does it mean to follow Jesus. And they'd understood about the grace of God in the cross and in following Jesus, but what about the way of God? What does it mean to live for Him? And so James writes kind of four mini-sermons that were meant to be kind of distributed among these Christians who are Jewish in background, who are persecuted, who are largely poor, who are spread out, and who are living largely in a rural farming setting. And so we read in our first sermon about trials and Christian maturity, we saw earlier on last year. Um, how God uses trials to mature us as Christians in faith, and how we can be joyful even when life is tough. Um, James writes in chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Count Lord joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. James is saying God even uses these difficulties that you're going through, you're persecuted, you're spread out, God is using that, and so you can have joy even in the midst of your suffering. 
In the second sermon, James really looks at this question of Christianity being seen in, in works. He helps us to see that following Jesus leads to like this radical life change through the Holy Spirit and how the true follower of Jesus will display this changed life as evidence that they've truly put their trust in Jesus. Like James says in 2.14, he says, what, is it, what good is it, brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? The point is, if you've been saved, if the Holy Spirit has come to dwell in you, you're going to have a changed life. God's going to change you, and the evidence of that is in our works. And then thirdly, in the third sermon, we heard about dissensions in the community. There was these divisions, these arguments, this, this, this splintering of the community. And James really encourages the Christians, these Jewish Christians, to follow the example of Jesus, which is really to solve arguments by laying down our rights and our desires for the sake of others, to act in the best interest of others, to think the best of others, to love others like Jesus. Just like James says, Uh, in chapter 4, verse 6, he says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. The answer to arguments and fights is to submit ourselves to God, to be like Jesus. Well, our passage marks the start of the final of these four sermons. And this sermon really is about the implications of a Christian worldview. That's what James is going to look at. Well, what is even a worldview? What's that even all about? Well, a worldview is something we all have. Uh, It's something everyone has. It's the way we kind of make sense of the world around us. A worldview is the answers to questions, or the answers we give to the big questions in life. Questions like, how did I get here? Questions like, what's caused all the wrong in my life and in the world? Questions like, What's my hope for fixing everything in my life and in the world? Questions like, what's the dream scenario when everything will be right? Now, the truth is, a worldview isn't just a story or the stories that we all tell ourselves, the big answers to the big questions of life that we have. It's something that the Bible has very specific answers to. You see, in the Bible, the Bible teaches us that I'm here because God has made me to know and enjoy Him. See, the Bible teaches that the world and my life are broken because of the curse of sin and that because we have turned our backs on God. See, the Bible teaches that nothing can ultimately fix the sin brokenness and the emptiness in my life or in the world but the finished work of Jesus Christ in Him alone. And see, the Bible also teaches that we live in the last days before Jesus returns to this earth and begins His final redemption, and that all work done outside of Christ is ultimately in vain. We might be sitting there thinking, okay, I get this worldview thing, but why does it even matter? Why is James even bothered about talking about the worldview? You see, worldview will shape nearly every decision you make in your life. Nearly every situation you face in your life will be shaped and affected by your worldview. It'll affect where you live. It'll affect how you spend your time, how you spend your money, what jobs you take, how you raise your kids, how you counsel others, where you'll serve Jesus, and what church you'll attend. But secondly, it won't just affect and shape every decision you make in your life. Your worldview, well, it's possible to call yourself a Christian and to have a worldview completely out of step with the Bible. And that was exactly the case 
for these Christians that James is writing to. They're gathering uh, on, uh, together at church on a Sunday and nodding their head as they sing songs about Jesus coming back again. And then, and then outside of their gatherings together, they were living exactly like their non-Christian neighbors Monday through to Saturday. They were living for Jesus part-time. Why don't you turn and read with me verse uh, 13 of our passage this morning as we dive back into looking at the text. James says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. You know, some of the more well-to-do Christians, uh, we know that because most of the people that James was writing to were subsistence farmers, like they were just farming so that they had enough food to eat and couldn't travel. Uh, Doug Moo, one of the commentators, says that these Christians were kind of relatively well-to-do, kind of merchant class. And these people were making plans to travel and to trade, to make money. And you might be sitting there thinking, okay, 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 well, what's wrong with that? I mean, what's the problem with making plans to trade and make money? Are you saying that I shouldn't be ever making plans to trade or make money? Is there something wrong about that? No, if you're a person, you have to make plans. Well, what's the problem here? What's wrong with the way in which these Christians were going about their business? Well, James is going to bring to our attention three signs that really these Christians were only living for Jesus part-time. And the first sign is that they were living presumptuously. Read with me the first part of verse 14. James writes this, You go to such and such town, spend a year there and trade to make profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Tomorrow is uncertain. But we like to pretend it's not. Uh, J.A. Motyer, in his commentary, says this. He says, When James exposes the blemish of presumptuousness, he exposes something which is the unrecognized claim of our hearts. We speak to ourselves, and here's the crux, as if life were our right, as if our choice were the only deciding factor, as if we had in ourselves all that was needed to make a success of things, as if getting on, making money, doing well, were life's sole objective. We tell ourselves as though tomorrow is certain. We tell ourselves as though we have everything we need, all the potential to make ourselves a success. And yet here's the truth the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that life is not our right. The Bible teaches that our choice is not the only deciding factor. The Bible teaches that we don't have in ourselves all we need to succeed because the Bible teaches that we do not know what tomorrow will bring. 
You know, I was reminded of that uh, just uh, this past week. Um, I was on Facebook and something came up on my feed and it was a comment from uh, the mother of one of my youth group kids when I was a youth group leader uh, back in my uni days. And um, this guy was uh, named Andy Horsley. He was this fun-loving, quiet guy who was really into like skateboarding and skiing and everything. Uh, Really good kid. And anyway, it was 2013. He'd been out of... high school for some years, Uh, he was uh, working and kind of traveling, living in Whistler, and uh, when he climbed a tree, fell out of the tree, and he died. And his wife, uh, sorry, his mom uh, posted this uh, around Christmas time last year, at the end of last year. And someone had tagged something on it. It came up on my feed. And um, his, wife, his, his mum says this. She says, Hi all, I'm sure you won't mind these thoughts being shared. Uh, much love to all our Canadian friends celebrating today. Five years ago, we enjoyed a snowy Christmas in Whistler. It was glorious and magical. And our last Christmas with Andy. Yesterday, there were wonderful celebrations, beautiful hymns of praise, great food and fun. There were the faces of the grandkids and adults enjoying their gifts, but there was no Andy, not even to Skype in his favorite snowy place. There is an ache. I'm sure he had a wonderful day too with the Lord Jesus himself. Love and miss you, darling boy. And I was just almost brought to tears as I saw that on my newsfeed and just remembering this beautiful kid, fun-loving kid who just unexpectedly was gone. The point is this. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. And you know, if there's no God, that's a, that's a terrifying thought. But if Christ was raised from the dead, that's a liberating thought. Because God is on the throne. Here's a question I want you to consider this morning. How would you live this year differently if you knew it was your last? More, how would you live today differently if you knew it was your last? See, life is fragile and uncertain. And we do not know what tomorrow will bring. Jayamotya says the following, he says, We take tomorrow for granted, thinking of it as a mark on the rim of time's will, coming on as inevitably as the circling of years proceed. But in the Bible, the years do not circle. They go in a straight line from eternity to eternity. And on that line, we receive another day, neither by natural necessity, nor by mechanical law, nor by right, nor by courtesy of nature, but only by the covenantal mercies of God. The very existence of tomorrow is as much part of our dependence on Him as our life itself and our ability. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. Tomorrow comes as a gift from the hand of our Lord Jesus, our Maker, our Sustainer, God Almighty. But more than that, James writes, 
or following again in verse 14, it says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. James says, your life is a mist. He's speaking to this kind of wilderness people who in the desert would experience cool nights creating this dew and mist forming in the air and the sun rises the next morning and suddenly it's gone. And James is saying that's, that's just the totality of your life. Your life is like a mist. Here one moment, gone the next. Think for a moment. And I was thinking about this uh, just this week. Name one family member who was alive 100 years ago. And I was thinking about it and I thought, you know, maybe I can kind of, I know the name of, I think, one. I'm not even sure if he was alive. That will be you 100 years from now. On the earth, forgotten. Even if you live a full life, it'll be but a blip on the radar of history. The point is this, our lives are so brief, and yet it's so easy to make presumptuous plans. Like, I'll just hold back on serving and focus on my career for this season. Like, I'll just work on getting the deposit for now And then when I'm settled, I can give. Like, I know my colleagues and neighbors don't know Jesus, but the kids really need my attention at the moment to ensure they reach their academic potential. Like, we just need a season, like a year or two abroad to enjoy ourselves and see the world before we really give ourselves to Jesus. Can I ask you a really hard question? How do you know you'll get another season? See, James has written this because he doesn't want you to come to the end of your life and be filled with regret. The regret of presumptuous planning. He doesn't want you to come to the end and wish you'd given more time to the things that matter to Jesus Christ himself. And that's the first sign that these Christians were making presumptuous plans. But not just that. Sign two, they were living without consideration of God. Read with me the next verse, verse 15. He says, Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. You know, there was absolutely no consideration by these Christians of the will of God. Now, this is not just saying what they needed to do is have like a little Christian tagline um, at the end of their prayers, like, if the Lord wills, uh, amen, or something like that. No, these Christians were on Sunday nodding their heads in the sermon. Yeah, I know that God has created me to know and enjoy Him. I know that the problem with the world is the fall and sin, and that's the brokenness. I know the only hope of fixing things is Jesus Christ. I know Jesus is coming back again. And they're nodding their heads saying, yes, yes, yes. And then Monday comes... And they're looking out and they think, what I really need is more money. To spend a bit more on me, that will make me happy, and here's an idea. They were living like practical atheists. They were living like part-time Christians. 
I ask you a question this morning. Have you been making plans without considering what God wants for you? Kent Hughes, in his commentary, writes the following. He says, So pervasive is our culture's arrogant independence from God that many Christians attend church, marry, choose their vocations, have children, buy and sell homes, expand their portfolios, and numbly ride the currents of culture without substantial reference to the will of God. More Christians never seriously pray about God's will regarding their vocation, family direction, or entertainments than actually seek God's will. They change Augustine's love God and do as you please to do as you please and say that you love God. You see, to make Jesus the Lord of your life means giving him full control. It's all the evers. It's I'll do whatever you want. It's I'll go wherever you want. It's I'll serve whenever you want, give you whatever you want. I'll do it all however you want. Just guide me in my steps. But part-time Christianity looks very different. The job offer comes around or there's an investment opportunity or a university scholarship or a dream holiday or a relationship or a business venture or a new home. And you might consider, will this make me wealthier or will this be enjoyable or will this be good for my reputation? Will I be happy? Even will this be good for my family? But absent from the decision is any thought of, is this what you want for me, Lord Jesus? Will this enable me to glorify you more? Is this how you would have me steward what you've entrusted to me? And that's the second sign that they were living without consideration of God. But not just that. Thirdly, they were living with arrogant self-confidence and reliance. Read with me verse 16. He says, As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. See, these Christians, they were boasting, they were bragging about their plans in arrogance, in self-importance, in pride and conceit, with this sense of superiority. Look at me and look what I'm about to do. Look at how I'll succeed. We can assume that they're probably looking down on the poor farmers in their community. If only you have what I have. If only you were as bright or as capable or as hardworking as me. Or even on the flip side, why don't you sort yourself out? Why don't you get a job? Why don't you pull yourself together? Arrogant boasting in their self-confidence and self-reliance. But James doesn't mince his words. See the second half of that verse? He says, all such boasting is not foolish, not unwise, but evil. Classic James, very strong, very direct. But why evil? Why is it evil? Well, you see, the reason is, is that all our capacity for good, for productivity, for earning, for any good work, It all comes from God. And when we take credit for God's work, we deeply dishonor Him. You know, Jesus says in John 15, verse 4, He says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, 
You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You know, when we live with arrogant self-reliance, we call Jesus a liar. We say, you know what? I can bear fruit without you, Jesus. Paul writes in Colossians 1.16, he says, For by him, that's Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You know, when we live with arrogant self-confidence and self-reliance, we dishonor the one who holds us together. If he will, he can make us disintegrate. If he willed, the universe could implode. Without his will, we wouldn't even exist, let alone have the good health required and education required to achieve so many of our goals. Can I ask you a question? Can I press you a bit more? Have you been making plans with confidence that you can achieve them by yourself? This is such a massive trap for us, I think, in where we live. Living in rich, entitled, upper north shore, successful in school, successful in work, wealth. And we can so easily begin to assume it. You know, I did this. This is me. This was all my doing. And we can look to the future and say, you know what, I can do it again. But you know what, this time maybe perhaps even better than last time. But James says, boasting like that, it's evil. Apart from Jesus, you can't do anything. All your blessing to date is His providence. Do not presume that this same providence will last. Loving discipline, if you're a Christian, may be just around the corner. We'll read on with me, verse 17. Uh, he says the following, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. You know, if you know that you should be living every day for Jesus, but you're not, James's point is this, you're sinning. You know, we so often think about our sins as things that we do where we, we kind of mess up and do the wrong thing. But sin isn't just where we do the wrong thing where we shouldn't. That's transgression. Sin's also where we fail to act when we should. Sins of omission. And knowing that you're living part-time for Jesus, that you're living presumptuously, that you're living without consideration of God, that you're living with arrogant self-confidence and then not cleaning up your act. According to James, that way of living is evil and it's sin. But it's not just that it's sin. It's also crazy. Like Part-time Christianity is like saying Christianity is just kind of moderately true. It's just like saying, like Chris Rock... Like following Jesus is something where, you know, you just want to have a little bit of salt. And that's impossible. 
See, C.S. Lewis famously responded to people who say, you shouldn't, you shouldn't have too much religion. You, you shouldn't take the thing too far. You shouldn't make too much of it. He famously said this. He said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, is of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. You know, living for Jesus one Sunday morning a week and then the rest of your life or rest of the week for the world, it's crazy. You know, if, if the whole thing is false, you shouldn't be wasting your time even bothering with Sunday. But if it's true, you should make him the Lord of it all, of your home, of your work, of your leisure, of your family. That's my first point. The folly of living part-time for Jesus. But secondly, and finally, how to live every day for Jesus. Well, how do you do it? How do you live 24-7 for Jesus? How do you avoid part-time Christianity, functional atheism? Well, the answer is contained really within that one verse, verse 15. So let's read it again. Verse 15 says, says this, he says, Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. See, the first step in living every day for Jesus is humbly accepting our frailty. If the Lord wills, we will live. You know, uh, when I lived in Indonesia, they had this saying in um, Islam, inshallah, which kind of means like according to the will of Allah, but it's kind of like, I hope so, I hope this will happen, that's something like that. And what James is encouraging us in is something very different from that. It's about living daily with this humble acknowledgement that your life, your very existence, depends on Him. I will only live if you give me breath. Lord, if you protect and guide me. Can I ask you a question? When was the last time you thanked God for the breath in your lungs? That you even got to live today? Why not this week start and end each day by simply acknowledging and accepting your frailty and dependence on Him? Lord, if you will, I will live today. Lord, if you will, I will wake up tomorrow. My life is in your hands. But secondly, not just that, living every day for Jesus involves submitting all of life to His Lordship. See what He says? If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. 
Well, what does it even mean? See, the main point in James is submitting to Jesus' revealed will in Scripture. And that's what James says as much in chapter 1, verse 25. Uh, He says the following. He says, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed by his doing. The one who looks into this word and does it, that's the one who will be blessed. Again, in chapter 2, verse 8, James says the following. He says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. You know, James' big concern is that people live in submission to the words of Jesus. That's what he keeps going on and on about. And living every day for Jesus involves submitting all of life to his lordship. In particular, it involves submitting ourselves to what Jesus says in his word. And the truth is, so often, for many of us, we don't really feel we know this word well enough to follow what it says. And if that's you, and you often find that you struggle to really discern God's will for your life, the thing is, we, we have so many resources here in this church, and it's not in books or in courses predominantly, it's, it's in people. People who understand God's revealed will. It's a body. And if you're struggling to really discern God's will, just let me encourage you. Talk to someone else. Ask someone. Ask a group leader. Ask one of the pastors in the church. And God will really use that to bless you and help you if your heart desires to be faithful in this. But it's not just tipping the hat to God's word. What we're talking about is really a wholehearted following Him. And so I want to challenge you as well this week. I want to challenge you to pray a really radical prayer. A prayer that if you pray it, could really change your life. And it's just a simple prayer of surrender. It goes something like this. Lord Jesus, I will do whatever you want. I will go wherever you want. I will serve whenever you want. I will give you whatever you want. And I'll do it however you want. Just guide my steps. Lord, do whatever it takes to make me the kind of person you want me to be for your glory. All my life, I entrust to you. I want to live 24-7 for you. Does that prayer make you nervous? It does for me. And I was thinking, why? Why do I get so nervous with that? I think the answer is, we feel like we might not like the way he answers that prayer. Why? I think in essence, because at the bottom of it, really, we doubt his goodness. But the one who James is encouraging us to submit to as Lord has earned our trust. He's proven beyond all doubt that he is worthy of trust and he is good. How do I know that? Because he's the one who humbled himself to die. He is the one of whom the writer of the Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, 
It was a joy for him to endure the cross for you, such as his mercy and goodness. And he was raised in glory and he rules and reigns on high and just asks us, pleads with us to surrender our all to him, to entrust him with it all. And I think when we see this, we realize that living 24-7 for Jesus is the greatest of all privileges. We get to be his servants in this life. We get to enact the coming of the kingdom to see his will done. Well, in closing, I hope that you've seen that living for Jesus part-time is foolish. Living presumptuously, living without consideration of God, living with arrogant self-confidence. But there's this great joy to be found in humbly accepting our frailty and submitting all of life to his lordship. Church, would we give ourselves to live for Jesus all day, every day? Why don't you join with me in praying? Lord Jesus, we want to pause and thank you this morning for your word to us. A word that is so provoking and challenging. Calling us to surrender everything to you. Lord, this morning we'd be lying if we said we'd find that easy. We don't. We find it really hard. I pray that you just help us this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit to be faithful to you. Lord, help us to see that living for you just on Sundays is foolish when you're the King of glory. But that in seeing and accepting our frailty and that in submitting to you in everything, there is unspeakable joy. So Lord, work the miracle. Change our lives by the power of your spirit. Help us surrender all to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.